0: Hello, everyone. You're listening to episode six of our podcast, You Have to Watch This. I'm your host, Ted Ryan. I'm Clayton Terry. And today, we are discussing two films that we recommended to each other last week. Those being The Silence of the Lambs
1: and Misery. So it is my turn to do the coin flip as always. Tails is Ted, and it landed on Tails. All right, so I get the pick. Which film will we be starting with? I think...
0: I would like to discuss Silence of the Lambs first.
1: I Take feeling, it away. I had a feeling you were going to say that. Um, okay, so Silence of the Lambs, our theme this week was book adaptation. So this is, I don't know if you can hear that siren in the background, <laughs> but it is literally directly outside of your window. Are they just circling? <laughs> <You're>... <laughs> They're actually turning around <laughs> in
0: yeah. the parking lot.
1: <laughs> Doing like a three-point turn. Yeah. <laughs> Our theme this week was book adaptations, so Silence of the Lambs is an adaptation of a novel by Thomas Harris. It came out in 1991, directed by Jonathan Demme, and it stars Anthony Hopkins and Jodie Foster as Hannibal Lecter and Clary Sterling, respectively. This is one of my favorite movies, to tell a quick anecdote that I told Ted beforehand. <laughs> um... This is one of my mom's favorite movies, so it was always, the DVD case was always sitting by our staircase in the basement, and I would always <laughs> look at it, and for anyone who knows the poster, it has the moth with the skull over Jodie Foster's face, and I, I just kept thinking, I'm like, one day I'm going to have the courage to watch this, because it's probably the scariest movie ever, <laughs> and um, it is deeply, it, it has some scary elements, and it's very thrilling, but uh, from that moment on, it became one of my favorite movies of all time, Ted, General thoughts: What did you think of Silence of the Lambs?
0: I really enjoyed this film. I uh, I think I was invested all the way through. Yeah. Um, I really enjoyed the protagonist as well as the just the the cast in general was really solid. Yeah. The the mystery that the protagonist undergoes was compelling, even though I was a little confused at parts. I I at some points I couldn't really follow the investigation, but Otherwise, I really enjoyed it.
1: Yeah, definitely. I, I As I said, I love this movie. Um, I agree with what you're saying about aspects being kind of hard to follow. And that comes from, I think, the fact that this is a movie that kind of rewards paying attention. You know what I mean? This doesn't spoon feed the audience anything in terms of themes. Um, it's very subtext based. The nuances of the investigation are picked up from subtle hints from Hannibal Lecter. It's almost like we have to figure them out alongside Clarice.
0: And even though I may not have followed the investigation all the way through, I never felt as if I was too far behind. Yeah. Like, the answer to my question was never so far away. Like, I never was kept in the dark for too long.
1: Yeah, what did you think... Of the two performances, we can start with Jodie Foster's as Clarice Sterling. How did um, how did that character work for you? I really liked her. She was
0: probably my favorite part of the film. She gives a very uh, sensitive and nuanced performance. A uh, very fragile character. Yeah. And her arc throughout the movies, her gaining in confidence, uh, was really satisfying to see. And it's very... Much like last week's films, The Fly and Train to Busan, um, she has a very visible character arc in terms of, like, her performance and how she grows as a character, which is very satisfying to see. Um, you know, at first she kind of starts out as this, not docile, but maybe more worried, I guess, and through her dialogue with Hannibal, um... She begins to really assert herself into situations and put herself above others.
1: We're both big on the show-don't-tell rule of film. And the opening shot of her climbing up the rope alone. There's the rope next to her that doesn't have anyone else, like, right away. That establishes that this is a character who has had to persevere and that she is on a path that very few before her did successfully. And it automatically establishes her competency, her, her drive. And that is paid off throughout the entire film and juxtaposed with Captain Marvel, which we just saw where, <laughs> where it lays it all out on a purely surface level and it doesn't go deeper and the surface stuff, in my opinion, it doesn't earn. With this, it captures a female character that is just so empowering in the acceptance piece, she said, like a true like feminist hero. And it does it without smacking you upside the head with it. Right. It's,
0: it's a believable character.
1: Yeah. And oh, I just I love it so much. And we'll talk more about the themes of, like, the male gaze, but to stay on the performances, Anthony Hopkins, um, he's in this movie for, like, less than 15 minutes, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> and that is, without a doubt, one of the most iconic performances of all time.
0: Absolutely. I did go into this film knowing of, you know, several shots of the film, specifically him standing alone in his cell. Him staring. And... This character is just fantastically introduced, you know, right from the get-go. He, like, the whole film stops to accommodate him every time he's on screen. And he, you know, through his, like, verbal control of conversations and the way he's framed within shots, Mm -hmm. he is always, you know, even though he's chained up or bound, he always knows what buttons... To push on people so that he gets what he wants, yeah. and seeing that in you know a character that is so mentally in control of and knows how to like manipulate people was yeah. really
1: fascinating. Mm-hmm. On a character level and then on a meta level, like that is such an intimidating character and an even more intimidating performance. And the fact that Jodie Foster and Clary Sterling can both go toe to toe with that. Like, the movie doesn't work if the dynamic between those two don't work. And they both pull it off so phenomenally. And I I was saying to you while we were watching this, I think those two are, like, both in my top ten performances Mm -hmm. in film history. I absolutely adore everything they are able to do in this movie.
0: The dialogue in this movie is fantastic. It's Mm -hmm. very layered. um, And you mentioned before a lot of subtext. Yeah. You know, Hannibal is um, this—I believe—a psychiatrist turned cannibal, and he's he's locked up behind a maximum maximum security uh, glass wall. And every time they they come together to talk, it's almost as if it's a uh, therapy session. You know, um, the way he gets her to—you know—gets coaxes information out of her is very controlled and very mannered. You know, it's almost like a a lion kind of toying with its prey, you Mm -hmm. know, and it's, he, he knows exactly what to say.
1: And the way the camera plays with that, the fact that, oh, it starts with these wide shots and then pretty direct reverse shot, shot, reverse shot. And then as he gets more manipulative and gets more in her head, the camera physically gets closer to her and then towards some of the later scenes where Jodie Foster's character is starting to figure out what breadcrumbs Hannibal is laying for her the camera pushes into an extreme close-up of him and it works on so many levels because it conveys that theme of like manipulation and power you get to see anthony hopkins just pure performance and it's also (laughs) really scary (laughs) yeah it it works on so many levels and we talk about this a lot too of like a movie in my opinion has to work at like a base level you don't analyze the themes or go deep into the subtext and then it has to work on the layers below it and this does like at the top it's a incredibly exciting thriller and then you get deeper down into the performances and the themes on power and the male gaze and just every aspect of the film is just flawless, in my opinion.
0: I do have to make a counterpoint. I really enjoyed the film up until maybe the final twenty minutes or oh, so. I, I love that. I don't want to get into too into spoilers, um, but
1: we we can get into spoilers if you want.
0: Let's hold off on okay. It. But I, I, the film has a very constant uh, ramping up of tension. You know, there's um. The, the mystery that uh, Jodie Foster's character is trying to solve is that there is a serial killer by the name of Buffalo Bill who has been kidnapping women uh, and flaying them after killing them, I assume. And uh, it's kind of, you know, she's trying to find this one woman before she ends up as Bill's next victim. Yes. And, uh, you know, she, she, she visits Hannibal in order to get... Not only a professional's personal opinion of a, like, a psych report of a serial killer's mind, but also a first-hand experience account of a serial killer, mm-hmm. because they know how each other think. And near the end of the second act, there is a sequence where Hannibal, I guess we need to go, go into spoilers now.
1: Uh, I'm good with spoilers. We've talked about it for, like, ten minutes-ish so far. So. Okay.
0: Hannibal manages to escape police custody and I felt that during that sequence it went on a little bit longer than I would have liked okay I think it could have been shortened a bit um trimmed Mm -hmm. um because it it got to a point where I was kind of like I feel like I want to go back to Clarice yeah you know I want to return to the investigation Mm -hmm. and then after that sequence I felt like the whole the the pace of the remaining scenes was kind of disjointed because now I'm thinking, like, well, what's Hannibal up to? You know, like, it's almost like two climaxes, like, with the two different plot lines, you know?
1: I could see that. I don't know. I really enjoy that part. Um, I do,
0: too. I just don't feel like, like, separately they work fine. Yeah. But one after another, it's a little
1: frustrating. I almost, it's almost like... Clarice and Hannibal have well they do have their own arcs but like their own little movies because Hannibal is playing his game of like getting what he wants to help catch Buffalo Bill and playing Clarice and everyone else and then that is paid off earlier than the other thing because I would argue that Clarice she's demonstrated that she could do all this on her own but Now she actually has to. You know what I mean? We see from the very beginning that she is a pioneer and is able to take on anything that training throws at her. But now her backup, Jack Crawford, and the other cops are in Chicago, and Anthony or Hannibal Lecter is (laughs) eating people somewhere else. And now she has to take both her training and her intelligence and skills as an FBI agent and all the breadcrumbs Hannibal Lecter laid for her and bring it all together to be the single person to actually bring down Buffalo Bill I don't think it works if you have Hannibal Lecter there coaching Clary Sterling the entire time
0: right I, I didn't want that um I, I wasn't I didn't want Hannibal to get a gun in there, going through. Well, that's uh, not his what I'm house. saying either. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I guess since we are on the topic, we should discuss the climax. Yes. Of the film. Oh, so good. That yeah. was I. My heart was pounding throughout this entire uh, final sequence. Yeah. Um, uh, Clarice is finally is able to track down, uh, almost by coincidence, uh, Buffalo Bill's place. Uh, as she is exploring his dungeon-like uh, basement, uh, he he shuts off the lights and she has to try and survive as he is closely stalking her with the aid of night vision goggles. What did you think of the sequence?
1: I... It's perfect. I love it so much. Um, we talked about this after watching the movie and I'm not the first one to come up with this, but the film without explicitly ever saying it is all about the male gaze. And you have the serial killers that share the hallway, the corridor with Hannibal Lecter. Look at Clarice Sterling, the same way those cops do at the funeral home and the same way Jack Crawford does in the beginning and the same way everyone else does. And then for that to culminate with Buffalo Bill watching her in night vision, while she has no idea, like, that subtext of the male gaze becomes the genuine threat at the end and it just thematically works so well and oh it's just again like compared to some of the other movies today that want to have these very good progressive messages but don't (laughs) can't find their footing like this just does it perfectly and it was in 91 (laughs) like It's, it
0: was, it's such a creative and brilliant way to personify the theme. Yeah. You know, it's...
1: Personify that threat, you know what I mean? Exactly.
0: And even though she does conquer it uh, and, you know, you know, bags the bad guy at the end and, you know, gets the award and, you know, the graduation or promotion and special agent, there is still a lingering male gaze present at the end you know definitely though it's changed in nature you know it's Mm -hmm.
1: she hasn't she's defeated it but it still exists yeah this is going to be something she has to deal with for her entire life and jack crawford you see his respect for her grow and end with that handshake but there's still i still pick up on something some level of Mm -hmm. a power dynamic that is kind of troubling. and It's all in the eyes. It is! And, oh my god, the eyes are so important in this movie mm-hmm. for everything. With oh, Jodie Foster's eyes, and Anthony Hopkins gives an entire performance with just his eyes. It... Very
0: stone-faced throughout the entire film.
1: Yes. Oh my god, it is so good. <laughs>
0: <laughs> there was one shot in the film that was incredibly chilling, where... They're having one of those interview sessions. I know what you're going to say. And (laughs) the camera is locked in uh, Jody Foster's face in a medium shot through Hannibal's cell. And he leans forward in the darkness so that his face appears in the light, uh, in the reflection of the glass. And it's like, wow. Like, it's terrifying, you know? And you can't, because of the overhead lighting, you can't really make out his eyes. It's just kind of these deep kind of skull-like sockets Mm -hmm. as very menacing
1: and to kind of talk about the horror aspects of this film like everyone's like oh it's not horror it's thriller because when a movie does well (laughs) like get out or whatever they don't call it a horror movie anymore because we can't just enjoy horror movies anyway that's a side tangent um but it does leave some of the most horrific aspects of this movie to the imagination and it's not like we were going for pg-13 so we didn't show you that it's like no we know what you're going to come up with is scarier because what just what these characters are talking about is fucking horrifying and the first and one of the best examples of this is when dr chilton shows the picture of the nurse that hannibal got a bite out of um while he was i think he was complaining about chest pain so they went to look at him they don't show that picture, but the fact that they describe it in such vivid detail of like, I think he says he he bit off her tongue or something. Right. And you don't need to see that for it to, for that to be what you're thinking about as Clarice walks into hell as it's depicted. Right, so um, she's
0: bathed in this crimson light yeah. as she descends into the this dungeon-like crypt of this insane asylum.
1: Yeah, and they pull out the one victim that's been in the lake for a while and they're doing an autopsy and it doesn't do a long pan up and down the body to show all the how cool our special effects got mm-hmm. it holds on jody foster's face and it just lets her perform and as she's trying to do her job but you see the emotion leaking through as she's like tearing up and her she's starting to get choked up and Just hearing what she's saying into her tape recorder is deeply unsettling. And what we actually see, we don't even see the victim's face. And it still kind of etches itself in stone in your brain. And I think that's what, in terms of the horror, makes this movie just leagues above some of its contemporaries. It's very much uh, Dada in that
0: respect, in which it's like, you know... For any viewers that are, or listeners that are unfamiliar, Dada was like an art movement in the aftermath of World War I that really depicts like the horrors of war and humanity, mm-hmm. but often in more abstract ways, but also sometimes showing more graphic ways. Yeah. This very, very much like there is a, in all film, there is a detachment from the viewer to what's happening on screen. You know, like you're safe on your couch watching this film. Yeah. But, There's an additional layer as, you know, we don't see the horror in its entirety. So we have to focus on the horror of the reality of what she's seeing. You know, she is... What is terrifying is what she's experiencing. The motions that are coming out of her.
1: Definitely. We, like, experience it through
0: her in a way. Right. The film does a great job of setting things up very early on. Yeah. And paying them off in ways that you don't really realize um very early on there's a when we first get introduced to the the killer the serial killer Mm -hmm. um he's shown using night vision goggles to stalk his victim or to choose his victim yeah and later on that gets reincorporated into the finale of the film yeah and in addition to that um there's a sequence that is very just kind of a montage of Jodie Foster going through training at Quantico. Mm-hmm. And there is a scene where she fails to clear a room because yes. she isn't properly checking her corners. And in the moment of the film, uh, you're not, you don't see it as set up. It's just what is happening. And so when these elements are reincorporated back later, it's very satisfying as a viewer where it's like, Oh, like you can put the pieces together and, yeah. you know, it rewards you for paying attention and remembering quasi meaningless aspects of the film.
1: Yeah, definitely. And just another example um, with the moss, it's like on one layer, one layer. It's like, oh, this is creepy, like pulling like a, the carcass of a bug out of the throat of a victim. That's horrifying. But then they use it to set up the moment jodie foster's character clarice realizes that she's got him she's in the home of the person she's been tracking for i don't i have no idea how long the timeline of this movie is it could be three (laughs) days it could be a month but just again it it rewards paying attention and noticing these details and caring about what is happening to our characters
0: and it's Details that are actually relevant to the plot, and they're not just there for the viewer's sake. Like, our main character is an FBI investigator. And so she, as well, is looking into the details of her surroundings. So yeah. it helps put you in that mindset of joining the investigation with her.
1: Definitely. And just another thing about uh, Clarice, I really enjoyed... We're talking about, like, all the scenes at Quantico... With the FBI investigation we see that aspect of her but then the scene in the courthouse before Hannibal Lecter escapes um, and they're talking about the screaming of these lambs and how Clarice tried to save one of them and how she's in this profession hoping that if she can just save this victim if she can just save this metaphorical lamb that these the screaming will stop and I think the film comes to a conclusion that it never does, but just the fact that we get to see this vulnerable aspect of such a badass character makes you appreciate and love and identify with her even more. And I just wanted to talk about that scene because rewatching it, I think it's my favorite scene in the movie, Um, and it's just two people talking and it's like the most compelling thing i've ever seen because of these performances and the writing and the directing too with um the way they choose to use their extreme close-ups and whatnot as we were talking about the the directing style in this film is
0: very much apparent and it doesn't try to be coy it know it knows exactly what you want to feel and it makes it clear
1: definitely anything else on silence of the lambs
0: uh check it out it is a lot of fun it is or maybe fun is the wrong word it's very compelling yeah uh
1: it's a good meal of a movie yeah it's a
0: hearty (laughs) hearty meal a lot of vitamins in it
1: it is true and um just a couple relations between this movie and some of the other ones we've watched or are going to watch uh this also won the big five at the oscars that's screenwriting directing actor actress best picture as did One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And this film, the protagonist, or I guess the antagonist of the movie, we're going to talk about next, gave the Oscar to Anthony Hopkins because your movie came out a year before mine. Ted, what movie is that?
0: So I recommended to you the 1990 film Misery. Uh, This is a uh, movie directed by Rob Reiner. And it is an adaptation of a Stephen King book, a Stephen King novel, in which a writer, uh, upon completion of his most recent book, uh, falls into a car crash during a blizzard. And a crazed fan by the name of Annie Wilkes saves him from a certain doom. But <laughs> what he finds himself in, a perilous situation where he must fight for his life. With his broken legs, he is at her mercy. Will he survive?
1: Stay tuned next week.
0: (laughs) Clayton, what did you think of Misery?
1: I thought it was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed the whole roller coaster (laughs) this movie takes you on. Um, Much like Silence of the Lambs, this is very much the dynamic between two characters. Right. And like, if that doesn't work, the film doesn't work. And Kathy Bates' performance is obviously amazing. Um that always is talked about still in f- these film conversations of like villains and whatnot. Right. Um Nurse Ratchet.
0: Yeah. Uh Annie Wilkes, you know, they would probably be great friends in some
1: reality. Yeah, in some reality. I feel like Nurse Ratchet wouldn't be able to stand <laughs> Annie Wilkes. Like <laughs> it'd be too much. But yeah, and like she gets a lot of credit, but James. Can, I, I think that's how you say his name. Sure. James Conn. Something like that. Uh he also gives a really his performance is a lot of like reaction images. <laughs> right. It's
0: it's a very perilous performance. Um as a result of the car crash, he has multiple fractures in his legs, and he is housebound to a bed or or bedridden um in her house to in the, in the middle of nowhere, um, with no hope of contacting the outside world. Uh, at first, it's a very um, nice relationship. Uh, she's a, an, an, an adoring fan, um, has all of his novels, um, and he is grateful and gracious that she saved his life. But the more time they spend together, the more cracks appear on the surface revealing her true nature... And soon enough, he he essentially is fighting for his life through his work, through writing mm-hmm. his novel in order, order to appease her and to stay living through her, basically.
1: Definitely. And we talked about this when the movie ended, but I, knowing the premise of this movie, I thought no runtime would be short enough. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, I thought, how much can you really do With two people. One of them's crazy. And the other is trapped. um, Physically unable to escape. How much can you really do there? And they do a lot. And the kind of natural build. Like you're talking about. um, It starts with her screaming about the use of profanity. And then it moves into more physical abuse. On top of the emotional abuse. And each time it stepped up. I was like, (laughs) like that physical, like the film never lets
0: up on the tension. It just keeps rising and rising.
1: Yeah. In like a fun way though. And not like a dreadful way. You know what I mean? Right. It's, and that's really, this film was really
0: fun because of how charismatic both of the characters are. Um, James (laughs) Kane as the, uh, the protagonist, the writer, uh, Sheldon, um, he has a very sardonic wit to him. Um, and, um, you could always tell, uh, what he's thinking by what his face is. You know, he's always, his face is scrunched up in thought and you really, um, root for him, even though he doesn't have, you know, he's not an asshole, but, uh, you know, he's, you want him to succeed. Uh, and, uh, Kathy Bates, um, it's easy to play a very one-dimensional mustache-twirling villain. Definitely. Uh, but even after all of this, like, you know, threats of physical abuse and, you know, essentially torture in a way, there are still moments where you feel an odd sort of sympathy for her. Um, there's one scene where it's raining out and she comes in and, you know, kind of opens her heart out to... Uh, Sheldon that, you know, she has suicidal thoughts and she is very depressed and, you know, even though you're rooting for this character to escape, you almost feel bad for this character. You know, it's tragic in a sickly kind of way.
1: Definitely. You definitely feel for her at points during the performance, which is what you want, arguably, in any antagonist performance.
0: You, You feel like even though you might not have someone who or know someone that has a writer trapped in their basement, uh, you feel like you know someone who is like Kath, uh, Kathy Bates' character, uh, Annie. It you know it's I love these fantastical films where there's you know zombies on a train or there's <laughs> class struggles in a dystopian city. You know like there's these fantastical realities. But there's that real human truth nestled inside of these outlandish characters.
1: I would argue that's become a theme of all the movies we've been watching thus far and the movies we happen to enjoy is no matter how horrific the serial killers are or how awesome it is to watch zombies get the shit beat out of them on a train (laughs) or how grandiose the city of metropolis is, or the long takes in children of men, what it all really comes down to is these human moments that are brought out from strong screenwriting that leads to a compelling performance that is visually interesting because of the directing. I think it all goes back to the human nature of these films, and I think that's been important for every single conversation we've had
0: absolutely you you put it very eloquently that's (laughs) that's a great way to say it um you know you mentioned that this film is like the perfect length yeah i almost wish there was like a sequel or something like i want more of these two characters together
1: you know like i want like i want to hear like what they talk about like in a mundane way yeah where it's like you know I don't like carrots. <laughs> We've been over this right. three times and you keep making me carrots. And he's not thinking about the fact that he's a prisoner. He's thinking about like, just like these small little things that are problematic about his time. You have with to
0: write a sitcom in... about someone imprisoned. And that just... would
1: be awesome. Stockholm sitcom.
0: Yes. <laughs> you heard it here, folks. It, uh, you heard it here first. It's coming to CBS all access later this week.
1: <laughs> oh my God. I would be so honored. <laughs>
0: We should also talk about the supporting characters in this film. Buster. Buster and his wife yes. uh, are the the sheriff and lone deputy of this small town that the story takes place in. Just a very charismatic, fun kind of yeah. character. It's almost as if, like, he's a protagonist of another film that just kind of yeah. like wanders in on this adventure, you know? Some and
1: Coen Brothers movie, you know?
0: Exactly. He... he He's always got a big smile on. Um, they're always having these little sassy arguments. And, you know, again, it feels like these characters have existed for so long and we're only now just meeting them. You know, it's really fun.
1: Yeah, it's um, to get fully into spoiler territory now. It's their banter. is a really nice break from the tension of his captivity. And it didn't have to be in there because it doesn't really go anywhere. You know what I mean? Unfortunately, Buster just kind of gets shot. And (laughs) it works on a movie-making level.
0: Uh, It works in a film sense where, again, this ramping up of tension. um, Buster enters into Annie's house and just as he's about to save Sheldon, his chest gets blown open by a shotgun. And it... Creates this kind of one-two punch of, now all hope is lost for Sheldon. So, I think it was necessary to have this character as a running byline. Definitely. To have that final moment of, no! You know, like that tragic, uh, fun tragic moment, you know?
1: Definitely. And like, Buster is killed and we know um, Sheldon has to escape on his own. And that ending, when he inevitably does was way more brutal than I was expecting. And the way it's
0: shot, it's almost like a a snuff film in presentation. It's, the way the violence is depicted is really uncomfortable. And just, the characters are really relishing in the pain that they're delivering delivering onto each other. And it's just kind of like, but you're kind of rooting for it at the same time. So, it kind of makes me feel gross inside that I'm rooting for this of horrific violence.
1: Definitely, it's hard to watch. I don't like watching people get their like heads bashed in, and that happens twice, three <laughs> times arguably, because she gets hit with that in the head with a typewriter. She falls into the typewriter, and then the final blow with the I don't even know what that the was. The old pig statue, the pig like door stopper that needs to <laughs> weigh like a hundred pounds apparently. a Little anvil, anvil. Um, but yeah, I was just, and that kind of plays into the conversation we were having last week, or yeah, last week with the fly. Of, like, not being overindulgent with your violence. And just like The Fly, I think the
0: mark of a good movie for me is that even though I know what's going to happen, I'm still just as invested as I am the first time I saw the film. And um, I mentioned prior that I had seen this film recently at the Little Theater in Rochester. And it was a whole packed audience. And... I had seen the film before seeing it in the theater and I must have shouted once or twice out of excitement, uh, in that final climactic fight, the film fully takes your attention Mm -hmm. and it's just really engrossing in that manner.
1: And what you're talking about of like still being invested, no matter how many times you watched it, not to return to my movie, but that's how (laughs) it was with Silence of the Lambs when you're that night vision scene. Where it's like, no matter how many times I've seen this, this is still really compelling. And I'm still on the edge of my seat. And that just shows how well made everything was surrounding that climax. Mm
0: -hmm. I guess we should, speaking of that, we should talk about probably the most iconic or well-known scene of Misery. Um, At least most well-known in the cultural zeitgeist. Yeah. Um, There is a scene in which... Uh, (laughs) Kathy Kathy Bates' uh, character hobbles the protagonist, Sheldon. Uh, And the process of hobbling is that she takes a large wooden block and takes a sledgehammer to his ankles and we see his... We see it happen and it is one of the most visceral things ever put to screen. We see his foot twist and his blood curdling scream as he <laughs> pleads for a reprieve
1: and like i've never been so grateful grateful for my ankles you know what i mean <laughs> <laughs> it's really something we take for granted <laughs> definitely i i want everyone to, after listening to this to thank your ankles for doing a good job <laughs> no but um i it's so ingrained in the zeitgeist that i had seen the scene before semi-recently um But in the context, don't shake your head at me. (laughs) In the context of the movie, it's so much more just hard to watch. um, This character that you've come to kind of appreciate. Just go through what I imagine is one of the worst pains.
0: And it's almost like it's one thing to like threaten someone by shooting them. But to like keep them alive and hobble them with a sledgehammer. Like there's cruel and then there's like. Horrifically cruel. Like, yeah, I I would have never been able to fathom that. And the fact is that like that was something that happened in history, as she explains Ugh. when she starts the process, and it
1: adds to the horror that this was something that happened a lot. You know. Yeah. Oh, it's like that and like curb stomping for me. I can't even. Nope. Nope. I just nope right out of there. It's so horrifying to me. Both of these films are about the horrors that humanity can. You know, Infl- accomplish. Yeah, inflict on one another. Mm-hmm. It's uh, they're both. I don't know if fun is the right word, but enjoyable. It's both like hearty, like you were saying. It's almost
0: like a uh, a haunted house, you know, like a yeah. It's like you're tense all the way through, but it's a fun tense. You know, you're excited to yeah watch
1: it. It's not as dreadful as um some other movies that may come up. Some other horror. <laughs> uh elements but it still keeps your attention the whole way through so i'm glad you enjoyed this film do you have
0: any concluding thoughts
1: um i think we talked about most of it it's uh it goes in the pantheon of stephen king movies that i love and will look back on fondly um so i appreciate you sharing with it with me um it was A joy to watch Silence of the Lambs with you, that is...
0: Likewise, it was a film that
1: I always intended to watch, and I've only
0: ever heard positive things. It's just finding the time to watch them is
1: really difficult. Definitely. Um, So this was a really fun week. Ted, what's our theme for next week? Well, we struggled to come up (laughs) with a theme, so we decided
0: that we'll just recommend something in black and white, I believe.
1: Something... Yeah, some like older movie, like pre-60s, I think we... Decided on.
0: So, what am I going to be watching next week?
1: Ted, have you seen Casablanca?
0: I have not.
1: Well, we're going to change that. Because <laughs> of all the podcasts in all the world, you had to co-host me with this one. I'm keeping that in. <laughs> um, this is... That sounds like that means something. It's a quote from the movie. I think. They talk about podcasts. Very clever. <laughs> <laughs> no, but... um i saw this movie in a film no it was after an ap exam i watched it for the first time in a class and it was great and then i watched it again in a film class and it was amazing and i watched it again for a different class
0: oh my god
1: and now it's one of my favorite movies (laughs) it's this the godfather citizen kane like those are the three that always come up of like greatest films of all time Mm -hmm. and i'm very excited to share with you and to discuss
0: I believe it's one of my parents' favorite movies, so I'm looking forward to it. Awesome. And the film that I'm going to be recommending to you is a similarly very highly rated film. Uh, It is Masakai Kobayashi's Harakiri.
1: Ooh, we made it to Harakiri.
0: (laughs) This is a fantastic movie. It is breathtaking, Uh, and I... Similar to what you recommended, I watched this as part of a class. Mm-hmm. Um, I watched this film in addition to Hidden Fortress in a samurai history class. And this film is epic in its scope. It is moving, it's engrossing, and much like Metropolis, it really is such a poetic narrative narrative that encapsulates like the signs of the times for the history that this film takes place in
1: awesome i'm very excited yeah this is also in like i think for letterbox top 250 it's like three or four so and it deserves it i was yeah. blown away by this film so we are not holding back from the classics right i yeah. am very excited to discuss these movies with you ted past few artworks have been pretty cool is there anywhere people could check them out other than this podcast you that you can my friend (laughs) you can
0: find my artwork for this podcast and any other schoolwork that i am doing at my twitter at ted ryan art at these fine
1: times awesome and i host two other podcasts uh the terry talks podcast and stories worth sharing we should say that we're going to take next week off because it is our spring break but we will come back At some point afterwards. (laughs) I don't have the dates in my head. Um, Don't forget, our intro song is outro by Wolfpack. Fantastic band. Check them out. Awesome. And thank you for listening. And thanks to Anchor for making this podcast possible. Bye.